You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for January 2014. Today's episode is titled, Leadership That Transforms. Leadership that transforms is not defined in terms of tangible metrics based on man's will and ways. This type of leadership will at best have only temporal success. Real leadership is about eternal success. It is about modeling and guiding others into living to do the will of God according to the ways of God in every area of life. The only true metric of success is obedience to and alignment with God. Any human-centered definition of success will, in the end, fail. Genuine leaders produce transformation in people and organizations because they facilitate alignment with the will and ways of God, which produces God-centered success both now and into eternity. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Leadership That Transforms the Workplace. Well, Father, we do thank you for this time to study, and we thank you for the privilege of being your servants in your world, sent here to do your bidding. Would you grant us grace to be faithful servants, grant us grace to learn and to grow and mature, grant us grace to run our race well, that we may honor you and bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my topic tonight is advancing the kingdom of God as a business leader. And I don't know if you back there can hear me or not. There's nothing I can do to help you. You're going to have to just get closer if you want to hear. Um, There's no PA system in here. So I'll speak as loud as I can without trying to lose my voice. Yeah, move on up. Just move on up. I'm going. Move your chairs up. Move your chairs up. What you do. Um, This is better and more cozy. Inc. Magazine has provided a list of the 12 best business books of all time. At least that's their contention. And I went through this list and I picked out a couple, or in fact, picked out three specifically to just to share with you tonight. Uh, I think you have this in your notes. I believe you have notes. Page 19. Okay. All right. Page 19 of your syllabus should have these notes for you. Uh, The first one that uh, I picked out is called The Art of War. It was written in the 5th century B.C. Uh, And let me just read you a summary of this. Uh, Dozens of uh, notable leaders from Napoleon and General MacArthur to Mark Benoff and Bill Belichick claim to draw inspiration from this ancient Chinese military manual comprised of three sections, each dedicated to a different aspect of battle strategy. The art of war is packed with timeless insights into how to set goals and achieve them. The basic premise that strategy isn't so much a matter of list list making as it is preparation to react swiftly and appropriately to any situation that might come up. So this is an ancient war manual that is highly revered by many people and that's why it made this uh, list on Inc. Magazine. Another example um, is a book called Endurance. It's the story of the uh, Shackleton 
uh, adventure uh, in 1914. Who, who has been to MBA school? Anybody been to MBA school? No one? No MBAs in here? Really? That's surprising. Well, most MBAs have done a case study of this particular um, adventure. This was a um, expedition to the South Pole and they ran into difficulties and they had to survive down there without much support for the better part of a year and Ernest Shackleton is revered by many as being a great leader because he was able to survive that winter with his men and no one was lost. So a summary of his book is this. Against all odds, survival tale of explorer Sir Ernest Shackleton and his 27-member crew is one of the most timeless leadership allegories out there. When the 1914 Antarctic voyage got stuck for over a year in an ice flow, Shackleton's extraordinary positivity and decisiveness is said to have almost single-handedly saved the lives of this entire crew. His ability to motivate and inspire in the face of bitter cold and extreme deprivation has been fodder for thousands of business school cases and studies. So if you had been to MBA school, then you probably would have studied this adventure and you would probably been asked to draw conclusions about leadership from this. And one more example that's on this list that I wanted to bring to your attention is uh, Never Give In by Sir Winston Churchill. Uh, the summary of this particular book is as follows. This collection of speeches are a terrific reminder of Churchill's ability to inspire. Curated by the legendary statesman's grandson, these rousing addresses span Churchill's career from World War I to his honorary induction in a US, as a U.S. citizen in 1963, and teemed with energy and charisma. Even in the face of grave uncertainty and impending Nazi invasion, bombings in London, Churchill exuded resilience and courage. The speeches are also striking in their candidness. He, may ha he had no speech writers or spin doctors. So you can see why many people would revere these books as some of the greatest books on leadership of all time. Now what I want to do is just make some observations about these books and my observations are true are, are gleaned from all ten books not just the three I just gave you three samples to consider first of all the span of time covered by these books is over 2500 years in other words you go back to the oldest book to the newest book which dates just a few years ago you have about a 2500 year span the knowledge presented was based on empirical case studies interpreted rationally with conclusions pragmatically discerned. Was that a mouthful? <laughs> well, that's really the way all of you think. Rational empirical pragmatism is the common way that knowledge is gleaned in business. So let's just talk about that for a second. Rational means you use your mind. Empirical means you're studying the, the physical data of the world. And pragmatism means that you have drawn your conclusions based on what works. Now generally that means what makes money. In fact, that's just almost always the case, it's what makes money. If it works to make money, then it's acceptable. So this is the common perspective of how we glean knowledge today. So the, the source of knowledge is empirical study, 
The interpretation of knowledge is the rational process that you engage in and then the pragmatic conclusions that you draw. So this is why the epistemology of business is based on rational empirical pragmatism. Is that clear? Yes. Well, be sure you're all, because that's very important, because we all buy into this and hope you know I'm going to tell you it's a lie. Now, I'm, I, I do acknowledge that there, there's value in the technique, but it's got to be used properly. And the way it's used by the world, it's used without a spiritual context. And when you lose, use it without a spiritual context, you use it improperly. And we'll go into that in a second. Success here was defined in terms of victory over enemies such as fear, lack of dis discipline, death, destruction, division, dysfunctional people, character flaws, and poverty. So success is all about the tangible world, success in the tangible world. The knowledge then was limited to life as we know it prior to physical death. In other words, what they did with these books is they drew out knowledge about how to lead based on rational empirical pragmatism confined to this life. So what commonly passes for leadership wisdom is little more than how to survive and or seemingly prosper in the natural prior to physical death. There was not one book on the list that dealt with anything, any kind of leadership beyond death. Does that surprise you? No? And most of us don't think about leadership beyond death. About a year or so ago, I was at a conference with a, it was a theological conference, so it was, it was Christian leaders, professing Christian leaders. Can I say it that way? You know, I... They all profess to be Christians. We, we got into a number of conversations about leadership. And um, there were several comments made about how we need to be studying people like the, the president, CEO of Starbucks, and learning leadership from him. And so I raised my hand. <laughs> I got a question. Is this CEO of Starbucks, is, does he know the Lord? Well... There's not any indication. No one there could give a testimony that he did. I haven't found anything. So I'm not aware that he does. And as I look at some of his policies and things, uh, I really question. I really question whether or not he knows the Lord. And so I begin to raise the question, why are we studying leadership looking at this guy? I mean, why would we think there would be anything profound come from someone who appears to not know the Lord. And the response that we got back from these professing Christian leaders was, well, he's been very successful. He's made a bunch of money. I said, oh, so that's the way we qualify leadership. Whoever's been successful making a bunch of money. So my next question to you theologians is, was Jesus a success? <laughs> well, sure he was. He was very successful. Well, then I said, he died broke. Whoa. He died broke. Well, he must be, success has got to be defined differently for him. I said, why is it defined differently for Jesus? Well, because it didn't fit their paradigm and they were trying to stay true to their conviction. They were going to learn leadership from the secular world 
even we, and even when they're challenged the, by, by Jesus and Jesus didn't fit their definition, then they want to change the definition. You see how, listen, I'm not picking on them. That's a picture of us. That's how we think. You see, we go to the world and expect the world to teach us how to run our businesses. We expect the world to teach us how to work. Why would we do that? How does that make any sense at all? So my, here's my thesis. This list by Inc. Magazine is not a profound list of leadership. In fact, about a year ago, I did a, I did a seminar on leadership. And I spent months studying for this. And I read all kinds of literature. In fact, I, in my own library, I have probably at least 50 volumes of books on leadership. And who knows how many articles I've got. And as I was reading through here, look at all this, I was looking for someone that had a profound sense of leadership. So you look at the secular world, you don't expect much and you don't get much. Then you look at the professing Christians and you expect, okay, now we're going to hear something really profound. It was a very great disappointment to me to look and find there's virtually no Christian writer who can speak profoundly about leadership. They're all defaulting to worldly thinking. Finally, just recently, I have found something that gave me some hope. It was written by a Jewish rabbi. And the book is not a leadership book. It's a book on, on wealth accumulation. I'm getting ready to do a seminar on wealth building, so reading up on this. And I found this book. And when I first found this book, I thought, well, I'll just spend a few hours kind of skimming through it and finding the highlights. I've gotten trapped in this book. And what's trapped me is this guy, number one, is a good student of the Old Testament. And he's got these Ten Commandments of building wealth. They're all rooted in Old Testament truth. So as I, the more I dig, dig into this, the more I say, wow, this guy is a great student. And so I got to reading chapter 5, which deals with leadership, and it's phenomenal what he's come up with, what he's seen. And he sees little things. Let me show you some of the little things he sees. He notices that the children of Israel are promised that they will, they will multiply like the sands of the sea and like the stars in the heavens. Now, he took that and he said, now why would, why would God give us two metaphors to talk about the multiplication of Israel? And he says, as the rabbis have meditated on this, they have concluded that the two metaphors are illustrating two points. The first point is the, the sands of the sea... You know, the sand, a, a grain of sand is fungible. You know what that means, fungible? Those of you that are lawyers or in, in, uh, in the securities world, you should know that. What's fungible? Interchangeable. One grain of sand is no different from another. They're interchangeable. So he points out that, that the grain of sand, for it to be significant, it needs to be with other grains of sand. And so if you put it with other grains of sand, you can do things like build a dam. Okay? So the significance of the individual is lost, but the community is powerful. Okay? Then he says, look at the stars now. The stars are a little different because each star now is unique. 
And each star has got its own characteristics and individualities. So from that, he says, we see a great principle of leadership. Leaders have to be able to see the uniqueness of each individual person. At the same time, they've got to see how that person fits into the context of the whole. So he says, this attention between the individuality and the community inherited leadership. I thought, wow, here's somebody starting to think profoundly. It's not based on rational, empirical pragmatism. It's based on revelation, the revelation of God. Now, now clearly, because he doesn't know Christ, his perspective is limited. And one of the first ways you see it in the book is when he talks about success in the very early chapters of the book, because success is denominated in dollars, making money instead of obedience. So it's, it's fascinating to take the book and see the, the wonderful depth that he's got and sees in the Old Testament and now bring Christ on top of it and filter out, you know, what he doesn't see clearly. And now you see something really beautiful. A number of years ago, I did a study on prosperity in Scripture. I looked at every text in Scripture that had anything to say about prosperity. Did you know that almost all of the revelation about prosperity is found in the Old Testament? If you're not a student of the Old Testament, you will really not understand prosperity biblically. So those of you that are inclined to throw out the Old Testament... And just look at the new, you're, very, you're limiting your ability to understand a biblical view of reality. So what, I say all this to say, what, what passes for common business wisdom, leadership wisdom, is largely worldly thinking, disconnected from truth. And it, the, the great illustration of that is it's only thinking about natural reality in this existence prior to death. So may I suggest that a more profound view of leadership must be found and can be found when a leader is thinking beyond this life to the next life. He's thinking not only about what you do here, he's thinking about death, which is the transition to the next existence and whatever it is that that's going to happen there. So a truly profound leader is thinking at that level. Now, do you know any leaders that think like that? They're teaching you and trying to train you like that? Well, you just heard one. Okay, You just heard a leader that's trying to get you to think beyond this existence to the next now and live now in light of then. That, that's what he's trying to say to you. That's what real leadership is. See, most leadership pundits ignore death and focus on physical life, which is a temporary state of existence is everybody clear that bar the return of christ you're going to die you clear on that you know i remember when my dad um was toward the end of his life um we moved him to uh, an assisted living facility or i guess it was an independent living facility with an option to go assisted and i remember one day being over there having a meal with him and he made the comment well we're all just here waiting to die and I, I thought about that, and I said, well, I think that could be said of all of us. We're all here waiting to die. So what are you going to do with your life? Who are you going to follow? 
Are you going to go pick, you know, one of the pundits on the top ten list and become a great student of them and try to lead like they do, which is totally limited to just this existence? Are you going to try to find a leader like Dennis who is giving us a vision for what God is doing in this meta-narrative which transcends physical death onto eternity? Are we going to get a... Are we going to put ourselves under a leader like that to think big picture long term? Or are we going to be limited to worldly thinking? If you're limited to worldly thinking, you will never do much to advance the kingdom of God in this life. But if you're willing to think big picture long term, if you're willing to transcend death into the next existence and now live in light of that, now you have a chance to really advance the kingdom. Profound leadership must address not only this existence but death and the next next existence here's a text to consider luke 12 verses 4 and 5 i tell you my friends do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more but i will show you what you should fear fear him who after the after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell yes i tell you fear him you see this life death in this life is nothing but eternal death is enormous. All right, what I want to do is, is basically zero in on, on one concept tonight in the brief time that we have and talk to you about four states of existence. And I think you probably have a diagram in your notes. It looks like you do. Okay. And you'll notice basically what you have is the will of man and the will of God and the ways of man and the ways of God. And so because you've got these four parameters, you're going to have four different combinations basically here. The first combination is the will of man and the ways of man. I call that the default state of man. When we are born into this this existence, we come into it with a sin nature that came from our ancestors and so our default now is a bias to sin. Now, does that mean you're as bad as you could be? No. The restraining work of the Spirit through common grace keeps people from being as bad as they could be. Now, can you imagine how, what it would be like if people were as bad as they could be? <coughs> it wouldn't be safe to do anything. It wouldn't be safe to... Walk, out, walk down the street, wouldn't be safe to eat in a restaurant, wouldn't be safe to get on an airplane, wouldn't be safe to do anything. So it's the grace of God through common grace to restrain sin on some level. It's not totally restrained, but it is restrained. And one of the things that happens when we have these horrific events, like we saw up in, up in the Northeast back in December, where all those little children were killed, we get a glimpse of what happens when the Holy Spirit pulls back that restraint. Then you see the ugliness of what it could be. I mean, what keeps that kind of thing from not happening every day? Well, it's the grace of God. It's common grace at work. So, please don't be deceived into thinking, well, you know, we have a fairly peaceful society, so men are basically pretty good. No, men are, men are basically depraved. They're fallen. This is what Paul says in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which means we're fundamentally in a fallen state. So that's the basic state of man. We come into this existence, and our agenda is to do our will according to our ways. 
Now, some of you know I've got three grandsons, and I had really prayed that there would be an exception to the fallen state of man. <laughs> and it wasn't long till my first grandson uh, revealed to me that that was probably not going to be the case, at least not for my family, because they came for me. <laughs> One day, we're, uh, I don't remember what, what it was, but he was probably only a year or two old, and something happened he wasn't happy with, and he throws a temper tantrum, and he begins to say, I'm not getting my way. And we realized real quickly, this, this, this is not good. So he was clearly illustrating my point here, that he was trying to do his will according to his way. So that's the default state for all of us and all of our children and our grandchildren, sadly. All right, so then, then we have two other states that I call states of hypocrisy or hypocrites. Okay, now remember, a hypocrite is an actor. He's a pretender, someone who claims to be something he's not. Now, there's probably, does anybody want to admit to being a hypocrite? Well, we have a few honest people here. We're all hypocrites. On some level, we all are hypocrites. But here's one example of a hypocrite. is is a person who is focused on trying to do the will of God, but trying to, but doing according to the ways of man. Now, here's an example. I'm using the Tower of Babel as an example. There's a lot of examples out there. You start looking in Scripture, you'll find them. They're easy to find. We can probably find them in your life and in my life. All right, so first one, uh, the Tower of Babel here. The, it was the will of God through the creation mandate for us to multiply and master God's universe. Would we agree? That's what we're here to do? So they, on some level, they were doing that because, you know, they had some advanced technology to be able to build what they were trying to build. They had to have some advanced technology. The problem was they were trying to do it according to their ways, and the ways of man are always about autonomy. That's what we see in, in the fall in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve wanted to be their own boss. They were not willing to be submitted. They wanted to be autonomous. They wanted to be equal with God. And so you see that same DNA now is in the people here in the Tower of Babel. So they were willing to advance technology and use it and apply it, but they wanted to be independent of God. So that's, again, hypocrites doing, in this case, the will of God, but according to man's, man's ways. Now, this, this Tower of Babel also, also illustrates the other hypocritical state, which is the will of man and the ways of God. So the will of man here is that man, man wanted self-glory. If you look at the Tower of Babel project, it was all about them making a name for themselves. That's what it says. You know, it was they wanted, they didn't, it wasn't, they weren't satisfied being a little pebble of grain. They wanted to be that star. Look at us. Look how great we are. And so we want to do something to, to make a name for ourselves so people will look and say, wow, look how great they are. So that was all about their will. Now, for them to have any level of success at all in executing their will, they had to use God's ways. Now, why would that be true? Well, it's very simple. Because we live in his universe. And he's made all the rules. So if you're going to have any level of success in whatever you're doing, you're dealing with rules that God has made. So they're using God's rules to try to project their will. Man's, man's will, God's ways. That's a hypocritical state. 
It's a pretender. It's an actor. You're trying to put on some kind of show that you are some kind of great person, that you're some kind of godly person, that you're some kind of righteous person, and you're not any of those. So those are the two hypocritical states. The fourth state there is the will of God and the ways of God. And Jesus is the best example I know. I don't know of a better example. And this is a person who was totally submitted to what God wanted done according to God's ways to do it. So he only spoke what he heard the Father say. He only did what he, what he was directed by the Father to do. Did you know Jesus was not an opportunist? And some of you have heard me talk about that, so you don't get to talk right now. But think about what he could have done. I mean, did Jesus really have any limits? I mean, do you think beam me up Scotty was a problem for Jesus? Now, you know, Jesus lived the known world was basically from, from Great Britain to China. Do you know at the time Jesus lived, China was over 200 years old? You aware of that? Millions of people. But over 200 years had been in existence. So there's this massive, pop, massive uh, you know, area of land that Jesus could have gone to. And who knows how many millions of people. But you look at where he lived. He lived in a very small area. Touched a very small group of people. You say, why? Now, if you and I were his handlers, we would have taken care of that, wouldn't we? <laughs> Listen, we're, we're going to get you on a road show. It's going to be really good. We're going to have these crusades. We're going to bring people, and they're going get, to get slain in the spirit. They're going to come to come, come to Jesus' experience. We're going to save the world, and you can do it. And he could have done it. He didn't need an airplane. He didn't even need a bodyguard. I mean, this, is, this wouldn't cost that much money. He could do it. But he didn't do that. And you're saying, Jesus, you blew it. You missed a great opportunity. No, he'd say, no. I did what the Father told me to do. Well, the Father missed a great opportunity. <laughs> you see how we're making fun of that. But, you know, the reality is that's how we think. We don't think like God thinks. So the challenge is, can I learn to think biblically enough? And can I learn to be sensitive to the Spirit enough? Can I learn to be in community enough? Can I learn to hear the voice of God, not only in the Scripture, but in prayer, but through the community where I can hear what He wants me to do? And I can do His will according to His ways. Can I get there? Can I do that? Well, you can. This is what it is to be a kingdom person. This is what it is to live out the reality of your faith. To be a person who's living in light of eternity, not just in light of, you know, retirement. When you think about the folly of how we work today, most of us work as hard as we can, as fast as we can, as short as we can, so we can quit working. And so we can go do whatever it is we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. We want to go do our will according to our ways. We're not interested really in God's will according to God's ways. We got the uh, American dream, right? Hey, be your own person, do your own thing, get out there, make it happen. 
And we, and we applaud that. We Christians applaud that. I'm waiting for the day when the Christian community no longer applauds what the world applauds. The Christian community begins to say things like, what we value is someone who's growing in Christ. Someone who reflects the reality of Christ in them. Someone who thinks biblically and profoundly enough to where it's no longer about the money. It's no longer about their own ego. It's no longer about their own you know, fame and fortune. It's all now about what God wants done and how he wants it done. God has a will about everything, and he has ways he wants that will done. So real leadership is learning how to walk like Jesus walked. It's also learning how to lead others to walk that way as well. So my, my thesis is this. There's only one right way to live, and that's the bottom right-hand corner of the boxes. That's where Jesus lived. The will of the God according to the ways of God, that's the only way to live righteously. It's the only way to live biblically. The problem is most of us don't know how to do that. Why is it that we don't know how to do that? Why is that such a problem for us? Well, I think it's very simple. It's called sin. And the sin is in us deeply. It, it, it was, we were born with it. Most of us are not sanctified enough to where it's been expunged very far. So we continue to live basically defaulting to our sinful states. And sadly, what passes for Christianity today doesn't challenge us to deal with our sin. In fact, the, the mindset of most people today is, you know, God should be there to serve me. God's here to make my life easy. He's here to take care of what, you know, my needs, keep me healthy, keep me wealthy, so I can go live the way I want to live. I, I hear these the kinds of things being said by Christian leaders. You know, God has a wonderful plan for your life. It's, you know, it's going to be great. You come to the Lord and you're just going to, everything is going to go wonderful in your life. You're going to live a great life. You know, we have no sense in the Christian community of a fundamental reality. And that fundamental reality is given to us in 1 Peter chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, this is one of those texts that you're not going to like. Is it okay if you don't like it? You're so quiet. I didn't hear anything then. First Peter chapter 2. He's talking about the marketplace here in this text. I'm going to start reading to you out of verse, starting with verse 18. Slaves. Now, first of all, you need to understand in the first century, who did the work? The slaves did the work. So when he's talking about slaves, he's talking to the workers. Okay, so another way to, I think, you can understand, you, even though it literally says slaves, you could translate this workers, and it would be true to the text. Workers, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Now, how many of y'all do that with your employers? In reverent fear to God, submit yourself to your masters. Oops, y'all awake? Did, did you not see what the text said? In reverent fear... To God, submit yourself to your masters. That's what it says in my text. Is that what it says in yours? Do we think at that level? 
Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Anybody here got an abusive boss? Got a dysfunctional boss, an out of order boss, a mean boss, a cruel boss, a boss that has you do things you don't want to do? For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. Now, keep in mind here, we're talking about unjust suffering. That means suffering for doing what's right. Not suffering for doing what's wrong. You do something wrong, you deserve what you get. But if you're doing what's right and you suffer, that's commendable. He goes on to say this. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Now, here's what you're not going to like. To this, you were called. Yeah. Oh. Really? Are you kidding me? I thought that this trip with Jesus is just going to be fun. It's going to be easy. It's going to be pleasant. I mean, my goodness, that's what I hear from my pastors. I hear it from the pulpit every Sunday. How much fun it's going to be. Well, I don't know what Bible they're reading, but this is what Peter says. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And then he says, he committed no sin. Wow. You know, there are just times you wish you could uh, just mark that out. Can we take that out? Do we have to walk in that reality? Well, if you're going to walk biblically, you have to walk in the reality of the whole word of God, the whole counsel of God. So what you have here, real leadership understands the reality of the call of the believer. The call of the believer is to be a soldier in the army of God to fight the battle the cosmic battle that's going on in the universe, it's the battle of light and darkness. It's the battle of good and evil. It's the historic battle that we're all aware of. Colossians 1, 9-14 is a great text that speaks of this. I'm just going to focus on part of this where it talks about um, we should be giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us in the kingdom of the son he loves. You see, if you know Jesus Christ, you have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and you brought into the kingdom of the son, the kingdom of light. And your call now is to no longer live like you were in the kingdom of darkness, which is the default state. And now you have to learn how to live in the kingdom of light. You know, when we we come to Christ, we are born again. We're now spiritual babies. Now, I happen to be able to hold my number three grandson about 11 months ago when he was one hour old. And I held him in my arms and said, wow, an hour ago you weren't. And now you are. This is amazing. It's an amazing thing. And 
and just um, it make you cry. You know, you should look at the miracle of life. And you also realize how utterly helpless he is. He cannot take care of himself. He cannot. If we just to set him down and say, okay, baby, go for it. <laughs> it's over. It's just a matter of time where it's over. He can't, can't bathe himself. He can't change his diaper. He can't feed himself. He doesn't know when to sleep and not sleep. Can't comfort himself. Nothing. He's going to die. He has to be cared for. When you come to Christ and you're born again, you are just like that baby. You don't have a clue how to live. Now you have been empowered by the Spirit now with enough grace to be able to get under somebody who can now disciple you and raise you up, train you, feed you, care for you, and equip you to do what you're called to do. But you've got to get in that relationship. You know, the analogy is not perfect. Okay? But the analogy is, has got a lot of reality to it. See, we don't have in our Christian communities today a sense of that kind of care for people. Basically, people come to Christ. It's like, wow, you've come to Christ. Would you like to uh, volunteer to teach Sunday school now? <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. Hey, maybe in a year or two you can preach. And you can, you can be an elder. You know, sometimes the insanity that we're into is just it's mind-blowing. So what, are, what are we smoking here? We think, do we not understand anything about God's principles? Let me just give you a little simple example here. How long does it take for a human being to grow up? How long, how long does it take? Huh? To physically grow up, how long does it take? Now, if you, my wife were here, she's, she's not. I mean, she's had a long day, so she's sleeping right now. She apologizes for not being here. But she would tell you it takes about 25 years. From her study, it, the last thing that develops is the cause and effect capability of the brain, which is why teenagers are so goofy. Because <laughs> they don't understand cause and effect. And they do goofy things, not realizing what they're walking into traps. And that usually takes about 25 years for the human body to get fully grown. So is that a picture now of, of spiritual growth in some way? I think it could be. I think if somebody were to come to Christ at age 25 and really put themselves under godly men and women to disciple them and submit to them and let these people train them in the will and ways of God, in about 25 years, they may have something. In fact, they have something that Scripture says is more valuable than money. You know what that would be? Something more valuable than money? Wisdom. Wisdom. Proverbs 8 tells us that. It's in the Word. Our Jewish rabbi would figure that out. And you as believers, you ought to know more than the Jewish rabbi. So the scripture says wisdom is more valuable than gold or silver. What is wisdom? I like to use Dr. Bruce Walkie's definitions. He says knowledge is an understanding of how God's universe works. Wisdom is now the skill to apply that knowledge to live well. Isn't that a good definition? I think it's a great definition of wisdom. And that's what you need 
Wisdom is what you need to do whatever it is that God has called you to do. You need skill to understand God's universe and how it works and then how to use that knowledge to live well in God's universe, which means you also are going to train and teach others to do the same thing. So the challenge for us all is to grow up in Christ. So now we are moving... We're moving from those Pharisee boxes, which once you come to Christ, you move, you move out of the default box into the, one of the Pharisee boxes, the hypocritical boxes. You become kind of a religious person. And now you need to move into where Christ is. Christ was not a religious person. You know, a religious person is somebody that goes through the form. They look like they're something that they're not. That's what a hypocrite is. But Christ was the real deal. He was in reality who he said he was. He lived in that integrity of his life. So it takes discipleship to pull us into that place. That's what real leadership is. It's discipling you to learn to live according to the will and ways of God. I applaud Shackleton for what he did in in keeping his men uh, from dying in Antarctica. That's wonderful. But he did not lead them fully into the will and ways of God. He enabled them to survive. A leader doesn't enable you to survive. He enables you to prosper in God's universe. And let me define prosper. Prosper has very little to do with money. And it has everything to do with alignment with the will and ways of God. That's what a real leader does. He helps you prosper through aligning you with the will and ways of God. So that's the challenge of what leadership is all about. So as we think about advancing the kingdom of God as a business leader, a business leader is in a fairly unique situation today. And in some ways, it's a a sad situation, and in other ways, it's a very challenging situation. The sad part about it is as a business leader, when you go to hire someone, for whatever position you need in your company, you're going to have a hard time finding a qualified person. You know why? Because of sin. And because the failure of the Christian community to properly deal with sin. Some of you have heard us talk about the C4 principle. The C4 principle is what I believe is the biblical principle to qualify anyone to do any any job. C4 stands for calling, character, capability, and commissioning. Since you're not taking notes, I'm assuming most of you know this principle. Okay, so calling is about the passion, the cry of your heart. Character is about living according to the will and ways of God, alignment with a biblical worldview, being able to discern what God is calling you to do and do it well. Capability is a skill and ability to do whatever it is you're called to do. Commissioning is the role of authority figures to commission you to what you're called to do. Dennis gave you a definition of apostolos tonight about being an admiral. I, I, I looked it up in my kittle. I got the little kittle on my iPad here, and I, I found some interesting things in there about, about apostolos. And one of the things I found is apostolos 
the focus of the word is on one who's been commissioned. Think about that. One who's been commissioned. That is an authority figure has said, this is what you are to do. Go do this. Okay, that's what commissioning is. We all live under authority. If you don't live under authority, then you're living autonomously like they did with the Tower of Babel. Which means you're not living like Jesus lived. Jesus was a man under authority. So, as you're going to go hire somebody, you need to hire somebody who's got C4. C4 to do whatever it is that you're trying to get them to do. Sadly, because our, our Christian communities, by and large, do not understand that principle, therefore they do not teach that principle, they're not preparing people who will be C4 workers. So you as business leaders, you're largely hiring people in your organizations that you have to go and disciple. Have you ever thought about that? Let me suggest to you, if you're a business leader, you're a business owner, a manager, a at whatever level you manage, where you oversee people, you are in the discipleship business. And let me just say this. Whoever it is that you are over, if you are not discipling them, you are managing their sin. That's the only choices you have. You're going to disciple them into the will and ways of God, or you're going to manage their sin. And those of you who had enough experience trying to manage sin, you know it doesn't work well. Sin management never works well. What you must do with everyone that's underneath you is you must have a discipling relationship with them where you are training them and you are discipling them into their C4 so they can do what they're called to do according to the will and ways of God. That's how you begin to build an organization. So... The key here now is to, you have you as a manager have to become very skilled at this because sadly the Christian community is not and therefore not, not producing these qualified people. In, a, in an ideal situation, if we could define a true Christian culture and we were part of that, we would have the church is so clear on what the gospel is and so clear on how they're supposed to equip people to go do what these people are called to do in whatever context God's called them to, the church would be putting out C4 people. That's what will be coming out of the door. Train C4 people. So now you as an employer, hey, man, it's, it's going to be fun and easy now because I'm hiring qualified people. That would be a different experience. But you don't have that. So you're going to have to make up the difference. And by the way, those of you that may have a corporate chaplaincy program, that's really not going to help you very much. You know why that's not going to help you? At least what I have seen in the corporate chaplaincy program. The problem with that program is it's been an excuse for management to be irresponsible. Management has got to take on the role of being a discipler of those underneath them. And what happens when they hire a corporate chaplain is they... they they basically delegate the responsibility of the care of the people to the corporate chaplain. We're not going to worry about that. The chaplain handles it, and we're just going to go run our business without really much thought about how to disciple the people underneath us. Underneath us. So I'm not a huge fan of that. I know it's a huge movement going on, and people are really proud of it, and they think it's a great thing. They, they extol it. As, Look at us. We're a Christian company. we got a corporate chaplain. Or we hire corporate chaplains. Now, what you need 
is leadership who understands how to help people walk in the will and ways of God. Disciple them, help them find their C4 purpose and do it. That's what real leaders do. Now, when you begin to do this, you begin to, to populate your companies with people who have C4. You know what's going to happen to your organization? It's going to begin to soar. It's going to begin to, to operate at levels that you've never seen. Because the key for successful operations is having the right people doing the right things. So it starts very granular with the individual people, the stars, if you wish. But then the stars come together like the sand, and it's that sand now that does this incredible thing, the community called an organization. Real leaders understand the organization will never be excellent if the individuals aren't excellent. The, the organization will never be godly if the individuals are not godly. The organization will never be efficient if the individuals are not efficient. You see, you've got to start at the granular level to get to the community level. Now, most of you are familiar with texts like Ephesians 2, 8, 8 through 10. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 tells you very clearly that God is a very personal God who creates everyone specifically and individually for a purpose. So I'm not going to dwell on that. I'm trusting you know that. But I'm going to take you to a text that you may not know, a text that you may not want to hear. This is a text that has to do with strategic planning. This is a... Strategic planning is an organizational function. What leadership does strategically plans what that organization is supposed to do. And strategic planning is absolutely essential. If you don't plan strategically, then you're leaving your organization up to the whims of whatever is going on today, whatever looks good today or tomorrow or the next day. And so you're just tossed around like little children. By, by the wind and waves of circumstances. God is not tossed around, and he doesn't toss around. He directs, he guides. So I'm going to take you to James 4, verses 13 through 17, and we're going to look at a text that specifically states how you're supposed to plan. James writes, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. What do we call that? That's a business plan, isn't it? I've written scores of business plans in my career, and that's everyone I ever did. The graphs were going up, and we're always going to make a bunch of money. <laughs> it's always the way it is. So that's what this says here. Today or tomorrow, we're going to go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make a bunch of money. James then writes, why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. Very true. Don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Very true, too. It's like my dad said, we're all just waiting to die. But the beautiful thing is, God has a purpose for you while you wait. That makes the waiting significant. Now he offers a different perspective. Now, well, some of you probably would be thinking, well, this just justifies why we don't plan. No, that's not the perspective James gives you. If you're drawing that conclusion, you're drawing the wrong conclusion. He tells you here. 
Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. What he's saying is, there's nothing wrong with writing a business plan, but you must get very clear that a business plan is a tool to discern the will of God. That's what it is. If you don't approach business planning seeking to discern the will of God, then what are you doing? You're seeking to implement your will. You're just being a hypocrite at best or a flat-out pagan at worst. You see, God has a will for everything. He is sovereignly in control of his universe. He desires for us to seek him on everything. When I do strategic planning with my clients and I remember one year I was doing planning for a company that that bought and sold used furniture. And the management team for this company um, was not real strong spiritually, but I, that doesn't usually hold me back. Uh, I'm going to lay it out there. So I, <clears throat> I like to start planning sessions with this text. And so I said, okay, we're, we're, we've gathered here to do your planning today. And so we want to pray, and I want to read you some scripture that I think is relevant. And so we prayed, and I read the scripture to them, and they all kind of looked at me like, what? What's God got to do with this? This is business. You know, God's what we do on Sunday. You know, we're here to make money. You know, we want to make a bunch of money. I want a big bonus. Well, needless to say, that was a struggle. It was a struggle to get them into a, a good frame of mind, but <clears throat> that's pretty typical, sadly. You know, can we get to the place where we really believe that God has a plan for your business? He's got a will. You, you know that God made the rules for your business? Do you know that? You aware of that? Whatever business you're in, it doesn't matter what business you're in. He made the rules. Is there any rules he didn't make? Well, we're talking about things, the ways things work in his universe. That's the knowledge of how his universe works. Are there any principles that work in his universe that God hasn't made? Are they, are they not pragmatic? Huh? Are they not pragmatic? Well, we might learn them pragmatically if we're looking for them. But see, most of the time what happens is we, we draw conclusions because we have wrong definitions of success. If your definition of success is all about money, then you're going to draw wrong conclusions. But if your definition of success is now about obedience and alignment with God, now you can draw some conclusions that do line up with God. So it gets down to what's your motive, what's your heart, what's your agenda. Real business leaders are clear. The motive and agenda is always alignment with the will and ways of God. That's what profound leadership is. If you're under anyone that's not leading you into the will and ways of God, you're not under a good leader. Now, God may have assigned you there temporarily for his purposes, but you need to be asking the Lord for grace to know how to deal with this and for wisdom as to whether or not he wants you to transition. You may have the call of Daniel. Daniel spent his whole life under pagan rulers, but that was his call. Other times, people do have choices. You know, it looks like a choice, but the reality is God's right in the middle of that choice. If he's going to let you move, he's going to direct it. He's got a will for where you go. So real leadership 
we clear real leadership is leading like Jesus led, living according to God's will and God's ways, period. No exceptions. It applies in every area. It starts with the individual. It applies to the organization. And when organizations are doing what God has called them to do, according to his will and his way, they're fulfilling their role in the meta narrative, which is God's overarching story of history, which is all about Christ. That's what makes life significant. Obedience to what God created you to do, and therefore what he created your organization to do, so that everyone plays their role in the meta narrative. That's how you advance the kingdom of God. That's how you bring the rule and reign of God on this planet through obedient, faithful discipleship in your own life. So may the Lord give us all grace to learn how to do that in Jesus' name. Well, Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for the reality of Jesus and how he set an example for us to live according to his will, your will and your ways. Give us the grace to learn how to live like that. Give us the grace to learn how to walk obediently, to define truth as you define it, to embrace your wisdom and not man's wisdom, to embrace your knowledge and not man's knowledge, to learn how to walk with a total focus of being your servants and truly being disciples of Jesus Christ. So grant us that grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I know it's late, but just for maybe five minutes, anybody want to ask a question? Or you just want to go to bed? Yes, Rita. With the uh, working and discipling your employees in the four C's, yeah. how, do you, how do you manage, or it's kind of a practical question, but if you discover in the midst of working with an employee that you know, what their calling and passion is really not what they're doing, yeah. um, do you try to find some area in the organization that does work with them, or have you seen some instances where you literally help the employee move on to another Okay, good question. Her question is, um, what happens if you have somebody in your organization that clearly is in a position where they don't have C4 to do that position? Um, my, my counsel to my clients is this. First of all, you pray and seek the Lord. Is this person supposed to be part of the organization? And one of the ways he'll validate that is he'll show you a position where they can have a C, be C4 in that position. So you, you certainly be looking at that as the first choice. Uh, secondly, you want to validate that they're really submitted to you so you can disciple them. To me, for the things I'm looking for if I'm going to disciple someone is are they humble, are they teachable, are they submitted? Now you might say those are redundant. Well, yeah, maybe so. But it's three ways to look at it that help me see, to help me evaluate, do I have the proper relationship to truly disciple this person, or is he stiff-arming me, okay? Which that happens a lot. A lot of people will give you lip service, and then they stiff-arm you. So if you're not having that relationship, I can't disciple them. So even if I see a position where they might be C4, if I can't disciple them, it's not going to work. So then I'm looking at transitioning them. And, and the objective there is to help them get in a situation where hopefully they can submit and be discipled and find where they can have C4. And let me just remind you of this, if you haven't heard this. To me, the definition of abuse 
is when you use anyone outside of their C4 calling. That is abusive. Okay, yes? What if the, the person that is humble is open up to you and making some progress, but, but my question is how do you really gauge that? It, it, how much progress does the person need to make on getting to know Christ? Well, again, that's, that's where you've got to learn to be tuned into the Spirit. See, you've got to walk in the Spirit to do this. Uh, those of you that are trying to run businesses just by looking at, at data, you know, you know, you're going to have to learn how to walk in the Spirit. So this, this requires you to be in community. You need to, ha- you need to be under authority. You need to have people discipling you because the people you can talk to, spiritual fathers that you can talk with about situations that come up, that you can pray with, and really discern what God is saying. You know, walking in faith is, is something that it, it's something you have to learn how to do. You've you got to see it modeled in the lives of others. So you need to be walking with godly people that can train you. You know, one of the things that I, I, in this book by this Jewish rabbi that I really appreciate is he's very clear that in the Jewish tradition, uh, there's no such thing as self-taught. You are trained. You are taught. You see, we've gotten into this mode of thinking we can be self-taught. I don't need anybody. I can figure it out. I can read the books. I can draw the right. I can, I can do it. I don't need anybody. I think that's lies. Lies from the enemy. We all need the teachers. We all need spiritual fathers to guide us into the will and ways of God. Okay? Yes? Two things. How would you see uh, Timothy 2.2 uh, relating to this and then also the modeling of Christ as the Three, the 12, to the 70, uh, in terms of the discipling. Because obviously you have a company of three or 400 people, uh, and you can't practically be involved in that. So how would you see that working on? The senior leaders disciple the next level of leadership. That level of leadership then should disciple the next level and on down. It's got to be that kind of tiered thing. You see that in uh, with Moses when he was uh, trying to deal with all the disputes there with Israel. You know, you talk about somebody had a lot of litigation, they had a lot of litigation going on, and Moses trying to handle it all by himself, and his pagan father-in-law comes in and says, what are you doing here? You're crazy. He says, find C4 people. He doesn't, he doesn't say C4, but he gives you the C4 principle in the text. Find C4 people that are qualified that you can deputize to help you with this. So he built a management structure around C4, which led him to disciple people into those judicial processes. So it doesn't matter how big your organization is. If you built a management team around C4, which means you've got godly people who don't understand discipleship, then you can, you can disciple any size, any size organization you need to. Mm-hmm. Kind of reminds me of the question, you know, is there an airplane too big to fly? No. The principles are there. You just need to know how to follow the principles, and you can build it as big as you want to build it. Same way here, the organization, the size of the organization, you know, there's not any limit if you start building biblically. Now, if you try to build a company like the Tower of Babel, it will not go well. It will fall apart. It's just a matter of when. Okay, one more question and we'll, we'll go here. Yes? Can you give maybe one or two practical examples of what discipleship in a business looks like? What it looks like in a business? Well, first of all, it means you've got to begin to, to meet with these people and talk to them about where they are with the Lord and help them grow in Christ. 
You know, growing in Christ is probably the most critical thing anybody can do. And you might say, well, gee, I mean, I, I, need, a, I need a surgeon. Well, yeah, he needs to be technically trained, but I want a surgeon that when they open up the body, they're in prayer seeking the Lord. I want that surgeon who's applied himself well to learn the principles of God of surgery. I want a surgeon that's thinking biblically, that when he's there, he's clear-minded. He understands how to work as a team when they're doing that surgery. I want a surgeon making the right decisions, who's got a scrub nurse there, who's counting the sponges, so when he gets ready to close, all the sponges are out. You know, you want somebody really thinking biblically to do that kind of thing. Why wouldn't you want that for a mechanic? Somebody's working on your car, that's making decisions about how to repair your car, wouldn't you like to have that kind of thing? Where they're, they're seeking the Lord about what's wrong and what's the best thing I can do to really to give this car back to the customer in the best shape that I can, given the time frame I've got. See, it's a whole different mindset you've got to give them. It starts with Christ. Christ in them. Christ being informed of them where they begin to think and act like Christ and stop thinking and acting like the world. So you do that. You, I mean, incredible things are going to happen in your organization. Have y'all ever seen a C4 person? Anybody seen one? You haven't seen one. Really? You know, if you've seen one, you'll know it because you'll just stand back and be in awe. They say, wow, what's going on here? That, did you ever hear the story about the C4 cab driver? You ever hear that story? You got a minute to hear that story or you want to go to bed? If you want to go to bed, you can go ahead and go to bed. But. I'll tell you the C4 cab story. Um, there's a guy in New York City, and he wants he used to go to the airport, and he comes up to this cab driver, and the cab driver opens the door for him. Now, how many of you had a cab driver open the door for you? And he's kind of stunned at that, but he gets in the cab, and he notices the cab is clean. The seats are not all, you know, the springs aren't popping up, and, you know, it's, it's clean and neat. And the cab driver says, sir, just settle in here. I'll put your bags in the trunk. He said, hmm, this is interesting. I haven't experienced anything like this. So then the cab driver gets in and says, sir, I have uh, several different beverage options. What would you like? The guy says, what? A beverage in a cab? <laughs> oh, don't worry, I've got several. I've got, you know, whatever you want. And he lists them off, and finally the guy selects one. And, sir, I've got several different uh, magazines and newspapers here. Which one would you like? Or I'll be happy to take you on a tour of the city, or I'll be happy to talk to you, whatever you'd like to do. God, I didn't know what quite to think about this. This is really strange. And so anyway, he gets settled in and says, well, yeah, let's just have a visit. So they're driving through New York traffic, and the guy's telling him where he's going to go, how he's going to get there, how long it's going to take, giving all that, all that stuff. And the guy, by the time they get to the airport, the passenger is just, he's just beside himself. And he said... This has got to cost me double or triple what normal cab fares cost. No, no, it's costing the same. I got the same meter as everybody else. And the guy says, well, how can you do this? I mean, your, your service is so way beyond everybody else's. He said, well, I just felt led that I was supposed to, to start this company. I knew I had to really do an excellent job. And I knew if I did an excellent job, I would have plenty of customers. So I don't have to worry about marketing or advertising or promoting or anything. I just do great service. And I have people calling me, making reservations now. In fact, I have other cab drivers that I'm training to do this, and they're out there doing the same thing. And some of them are working for me and some of them aren't. It doesn't matter. 
I'm just happy to share with them a business model that really does bless people. Now, do you think that customer was touched? You ever been in a cab like that? Oh, I didn't mention to you, it was spotless on the outside too, as well as the inside. Watch this car every day. You see, when you see kingdom people, you see C4 people. They're working like Jesus worked. Have you ever noticed that Jesus, when Jesus called his disciples, it was early in the morning, and he issues a call to them, and they drop everything. They leave their business, all their assets. They walk away. They don't stop and think. They just do it immediately. You ever notice that? You ever ask, now why would they do that? Would you do that? If Jesus walked into your place of business and said, hey, Pete, follow me and I'm going to make you a fisherman. You jump straight up and said, hey, I'm with you. Now most of us said, wait a minute, okay, let's talk about this. Let me understand the expectations and, okay, what am I going to do about this office and these employees and all this, and these assets I've got? That's how we're thinking. They didn't think about any of that. They walked away from it all immediately. Now, why would that happen? Well, I have a theory. You see, Jesus grew up about 30 miles from the Sea of Galilee, and he was a carpenter. Now, a fisherman, they had boats, didn't they? Now, what are boats made out of? So is it possible that Jesus may have made their boats? Maybe he repaired their boats. Maybe he made some equipment for them. Maybe some stools or benches or anything. Maybe they saw in the excellence of his work, this is an unusual guy. We've never seen anything like this. And so when the, the call goes out to come follow him, it's a no-brainer. We've already seen it. We understand what it looks like. We want it. I don't care what it costs. We want it. You see, I think that's the potential that's out there for us in the workplace. And we have we've barely scratched the surface. Can we do that? Can we learn to work like that? Can we train other people to work like that? Then you'll be real leaders. Real leaders. Not pseudo-leaders. Not worldly leaders. Real leaders. So may God give you grace to do that.